The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today is a special guest. He is a very critically acclaimed great author and wrestling historian. He's Mr. John Cosper. John, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. It's a pleasure to be here with you. What is going on in your world? What's uh, what's the latest? <laughs> the latest is uh, right now I'm actually... Wrapping up a second edition of my first book. Um, eight years ago, I released a book called Bluegrass Brawlers, the story of professional wrestling in Louisville. And over the last uh, couple of months, uh, starting while I was wrapping up the, uh, the Waha McDaniel book, um, I started doing new interviews, doing a lot of new research, uh, filling in some of the gaps in the storyline, um, and discovering new stories that I had completely missed on my first time around. And uh, This new edition is going to be one and a half times the length of the original, uh, word, word count and story-wise, with a whole lot of new photos and a new cover, and uh, real excited to get out there this spring. Why was that your first book? Like, what, what did you grow up in that area, or what was your kind of your love for the bluegrass? I, I've lived in the Louisville area since uh, fall of 1988, and believe it or not, never watched Memphis wrestling, never went to the Louisville Gardens. It was, it was kind of its not not in its dying days at that point, but it was definitely in its in its uh, middle to, to to senior years at that point. Um, but uh, I had grown up a wrestling fan, and, and uh, you know discovered wrestling during the rock and wrestling era. And actually, when we moved to Louisville, I started catching world class championship wrestling on ESPN afternoon after school, um, which which I fell in love with the Von Erichs and, and the Freebirds and, and that whole. Um, that, that, that promotion still is, is kind of has a special place in my heart, but, um, the idea of doing a book on Louisville kind of came from, I, it just hadn't been covered up to that point, you know, it, it, at least, at least not directly. Uh, Mark James had done a lot of wonderful books about Memphis wrestling and some of the Memphis wrestling heroes. 
And uh, but, but he hadn't done one specifically on Louisville at that time. And I knew between Memphis and, and OVW, um, Ohio Valley Wrestling, of course, that there was a story to, to be told there. But what I didn't know was just how far back it went. And, um, I started Googling and discovering some of the re- research that guys like Tim Hornbaker and Steve Yoey, um, Don Luce and Mark Hewitt had done and, and finding, you know, wrestling results from the 1930s and 40s and then going back and discovering the story of Strangler Lewis. Um, who actually got his name in Louisville, Kentucky back in 1913. So one day at lunch, I, um, I told my wife, um, and uh, yeah, I'm thinking about writing a book about wrestling in Louisville. And to my surprise, she said, go for it. So um, I, I had been writing at that point professionally uh, close to 20 years. I'd been, been writing Christian drama for churches and ministries, and I'd written fiction, and I'd written film, and, and uh, you know, uh, a whole lot of other different things, so, but uh, a, a nonfiction historical sports book was was a completely new and foreign area to me, and it was just something I decided that I, I wanted to give a shot. Man, you can't get any more different uh, Christian writing and then <laughs> pro wrestling, huh? Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Although, although a lot of the old guys are they're, they're all preachers now, so I mean, uh, you know, the, that is true. Uh, guys are, you know, they, they they they've all found Jesus in in their in their post wrestling days, and um. So, you know, you know, there's always connections when, you know, different places. So it's interesting. You never were like a big fan of, of Memphis and, you know, but you're writing so much about it. So I guess you became a fan of it much later on. Well, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, it was just, you know, for, for me, it was, you know, being, being a kid and, and having, you know, I mean, my first experience, of, you know, of, of pro wrestling was was the big show was Vince McMahon's WWF of the 80s. And, you know, Memphis and in my eyes at that time, well, this is just a local thing. And, you know, if again, you know, I'm 13 years old. I don't know. I don't know what's what, and, you know, I'm bought into the WWF machine hook, line and sinker. But, you know, I mean, I discovered wrestling when Hulk Hogan was hanging out with Mr. T and Cindy Lauper and, and Mr. T and Cindy Lauper were really kind of my gateways into wrestling because I knew her and her music and I knew the A team and um, you know so that was that, that was what first hooked me in but yeah but then again you know like I said I discovered world class in the afternoons and, and there was something about the Von Ericks and yeah I remember the Simpson brothers the Dingo Warrior and Percival Pringle the third that really struck me so um, but yeah I, I do I do regret that I that I was kind of late to the party on Memphis but uh, yeah certainly I mean it's a, it's a you know just an incredible, I mean, one of the greatest, you know, promotional stories of, of, of the territory days for sure. What do you think about that area? Just did really, you know, Memphis, Louisville, you know, it's just not like a huge population, not like New York city. We got millions of people walking around, but for some reason, you know, the ratings were crazy in Memphis. You know what I mean? Like we got like 50 mm-hmm. share, 60 share. What do you think it is about like that region and just having not as many people, but almost having a more percentage of those people watching wrestling than let's say uh, us here in the Northeast. I can, I can say for Louisville, it was, it was historical. Um, I mean, Louisville has had wrestling uh, on a weekly basis in some form or another since, since the 1920s. Um, and you know, it goes back even further. I mean, some of the earliest matches that, that I'm, you know, discussing in the new version of the book go back to 1877. There was an intergender match between a female circus wrestler and a quote unquote local man who accepted her challenge in 1880. Uh, William Muldoon, the great world champion, you know, came to town in 1882. Duncan C. Ross, another big star of the 1880s, came to town at that time. Um, and then, you know, in the early, you know, probably about 1912, 1913 was when it really started to pick back up. It died off a little bit during World War One, um, but then it came back in the 1920s. And, 
you had the Gaiety Theater, you had the Savoy Theater, both of which, you know, were, were I mean, literally a block apart from each other that were presenting wrestling one night a week as, as part of their nightly entertainments. Um, and then you had the Allen Athletic Club, which kicked off in 1935, and that was really the promotion that made Tuesday night wrestling night in Louisville. Um, for 22 years, they ran, you know, pretty much mostly out of the Columbia Gym um, down on 4th Street. And uh, it was, I mean, they were packing two, 3,000 people in Columbia Gym every night. Uh, and, and even, you know, they survived World War II. They survived a lot of different downturns, up different cycles in the wrestling business. And they even survived switching promoters. Um, I mean, Haywood Allen sold the business in 1947 to his partner, Francis McDonough. And McDonough kept it going for another 10 years and, and really didn't die out until he passed away from cancer, tragically, at a very young age. Um, uh, and it, the town did go dark in 1966. Dick the Bruiser, Lee Willie Davis tried to keep things going, but it was just a difference. The difference in the what the fans were used to and, and what Dick the Bruiser was presenting and his talent was the fans kind of died off. But but then Memphis came in and, and had more of a similar style to, to to what they were what they were accustomed to and, and, and picked back in the 1970s. So uh, again, it's just it's just it's just legacy. You know, Louisville has always just been a town that loves wrestling. Um, one one thing I like to tell people is, I mean, every major star, you know, from William Muldoon all the way up through John Cena has been through Louisville at some point, except for three. Um, that'd be Frank Gotch, George Hackenschmidt, and Triple H. They are the only three major champions and major, major, you know, main event figures that never really worked Louisville. Uh, Ric Flair came through town, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, you know, all of the the you know the WWE stars of, of the last couple of years, The Undertaker, The Rock, they cut their teeth in Memphis, Kane. Um, and you go way, way back to Luthez and Mildred Burke and, and Bill Longson, Buddy Rogers, Gorgeous George. I mean, ev- every major name, you name it, they've been through Louisville. It is pretty crazy to think that. Like, wow, everybody who's yeah. anybody who <laughs> so, pretty much Wahoo came through McDaniel. there. It was, Wahoo McDaniel was actually a surprise. I was, I was finishing Wahoo's book and uh, was, was, was working, you know, was, was actually starting on the Louisville book. I actually had my first, uh, you know, historical review happening of the book where, where Jimmy Wheeler from Pro Wrestling Historical Society was reading through it and I discovered some newspaper articles in 1962 which was right about the time when according to Joe Blanchard, Wahoo McDaniel flew to Louisville, met with Joe Blanchard Joe kind of checked him out and gave Jim Barnett the thumbs up, said yeah let's teach this guy how to wrestle. Wahoo McDaniel was wrestling in early 1962 in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, which I don't think anybody had recorded up to that point, so like I said, everybody's been through. It's it's it is it is kind of crazy, but it's just been, you know, and it's never a major hub. It was never, you know, really the center of any of, of the major territories. It was always a part of Memphis or, or Indianapolis or, or someone else's territory. But um, it's always just been a crossroads. It is pretty crazy. Like think like wow, little old Louisville. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Maybe maybe not so much. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and right now, I mean, OVW is going. Uh, shoot, they're they're 20, 26 years in and counting. Um, Al Snow's really really kind of kind of brought them back and and really kind of kind of rebuilding them back better than they ever were before. And you know, Kentucky, everything's very very tightly regulated. Um, pr- probably as tightly as, as as New York is, as as far as the, the commission and everything, which is which is more about money than it is about the dignity of the sport. You know, no matter what people tell you. But then right across the river, in southern Indiana, there's probably a dozen different promotions running at any one given time. Um, in fact, before COVID, there there were certain weeks where you could go every single night. You could see a local wrestling show someplace, either in southern Indiana or in Louisville, Kentucky. It was just there, there was somebody running. 
So Louisville, Louisville fans, they, they love their wrestling, and, and there's, there's certainly some diversity here you know, as, as, as to what's available. And, of course, you got to mention somebody you know, lo- loosely related with the book, but Jim Cornette, Mr. Louisville himself, Mr. Uh, Gardens himself, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually got to know Jim when I was working on the first book. I, he was at working at one of the comic cons in Louisville and I approached him and let him know what I was doing. And, um, very quickly he realized, Oh, this guy's got some cool information. <laughs> so, uh, we, we hit it off and he invited me over to, to, to visit him at the fortress of solitude. And, um, and he's, he's been a great supporter of mine from day one. He wrote the introduction to the first version of the book and he's given me interviews for, uh, Chris Candido's biography and Wahoo's biography, and uh, and, and uh, yeah, I mean Jim's cer- certainly one one of the one of the proud sons of, of Louisville when it comes to pro wrestling. With him, I mean, I guess you kind of got to go through him for some historical facts, but I mean, he's just a great guy, being he's closeness to Louisville, but also the historian part of him is awesome too. Oh, absolutely, yeah, he, he's he's definitely one one of the minds that you know. You know, I, I would love to retain, you know, names and dates and, and places and, as well as he does. You know, sometimes I'm like, you know, I was like, well, I know it was this person it was here and everything like that. And I got to go back and check my notes. But he, he's just got into recall of all that. So um, just, just a, you know, a brilliant mind for the business and, and certainly an encyclopedic knowledge of, of, the, of the important things that have happened. So talk to me about Wahoo, this new uh, book you got coming out, his autobiography. That's great. Yeah, um, I was approached uh, probably about a year ago by Karen McDaniel, um, who asked me if I'd be interested in, in collaborating with her. And her intent from the beginning wasn't just to tell us a straight biography of the man, but to interview as many people as we could and to get as many stories about Wahoo as we could, you know, written or, or, or told by, by the people who knew him. So um, it's in, in parts, it's, it's a biography, but in other parts, it's more of an oral history where we're jumping between, you know, different people telling their versions of the story. And um, that includes both of his sisters, Margaret and Dana. That includes a childhood friend uh, named Steve Calloway, who also took some, some early photos of him as a wrestler. Um, we did talk to a lot of different wrestlers uh, and wrestling personalities, everybody from Jim Cornette to uh, Joe Malenko to Baron Von Raschke, Bill After. Uh, Rick McCord, uh, a lot of different guys. Or, or uh, I mean, if if you knew Wahoo, you got a story. You know, it, it was. I, I very quickly realized I got two reactions when I asked about Wahoo. The first one was either no, no, I never met Wahoo, or I uh, never really knew Wahoo. We were in a couple locker rooms, we shook hands, and that was about it. And then there was the other reaction was they get this big grin on their face, they start shaking their head, they go, Yeah, I knew Wahoo. Um, and everybody was, was great with sharing their stories. And, you know, there's, there's certain tales about Wahoo that, you know, like, you know, you know, running 37 miles from Norman, Oklahoma to Chickasha, Oklahoma on a bet. And, and, you know, having being the only professional football player to have his first name on the back of his jersey instead of his last name. Um, but it was really fun because I was able to, you know, talk to a lot of different people. And, and some of these stories get some different versions of the events and, um, really kind of paint a picture of the man, not, not just, you know, through, through a straight historical narrative, but, but again, sharing the, the stories of the people that knew him and the people that worked with him and, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, getting to put it in their own words was, was a lot of fun. With Wahoo, it's one of those things where there's not a lot out there about him. You know what I mean? Like as far as this day and age, did, did you find that though? Like, is there's not enough people talking about him basically? 
I, I didn't. It was, it, it, everything was – the information was kind of scattered, but, uh, it, you know, if you looked hard enough, you, you could find it. Um, Mark James and, and Greg Grog put out a, the Wahoo McDaniel record book just a couple years ago, which is basically it's, – it's, it, it provided a nice outline for, for me to tell the historical story of his wrestling career. And it, it starts in 1962 and goes all the way through 1996. And what it does is just list every single match he had. And, and by following along with that, you know, I could tell, okay, well, he was with this territory at this time. Here's where he moved to this territory. Um, and, and then it was just a matter of, of, of looking for the sources. And some of that was going to the old newspaper archives online through newspapers.com. Some of it was, was looking to shoot interviews on YouTube. Some of it was, was talking to people that knew him. Uh, some of it was looking through other sources, like like uh, the Mid-Atlantic uh, Gateway on, online was a great resource for some of the stories when he was in the Carolinas. Um, and, uh, and looking at other people's books as well. You know, There's a lot of people that share Wahoo stories and, and, and books that have already been published. So. Um, the, the the big thing with Wahoo was, you know, he worked very briefly with the WWF um, back in the mid 1960s, and he never actually came and worked for Vince and the WWF. Um, and of course, you know, WWF being the biggest company in the world and having largely, you know, when they've presented the story of wrestling history, it's pretty McMahon centric, you know, and anybody who didn't work for them or wasn't part of that that circuit or wasn't part of that inner circle, you know, their stories really don't get told. You know, the greatest example of that being how they've portrayed, you know, the history of women's wrestling. You know, if you go to the WWF, it's all about the fabulous moolah. But, you know, to me, the greatest women's champion is the one that was selling out main events and was, you know, doing two falls out of three every night for 20 years. And that was Mildred Burke. Um, but Wahoo, was, he was never part of that. So you had, you had to go beyond, you know, the WWE network other than looking at some of the WCW pay-per-views and, and look for other sources. And um, he's a guy who's very well remembered. I, I've been very, very surprised and, and, you know, very grateful to see just how many fans have, you know, jumped on this book and how many people have been really excited about it. Um, cause, because he is remembered a lot more than a lot of guys from his generation. You know, I, I think certainly there's a lot of those guys who aren't being talked about, but Wahoo's one that, people, that I think kind of sticks in people's mind a little bit more than some of the others. To me, he's the generation that got like Ric Flair over. You know what I mean? Like him and mm-hmm. Blackjack Mulligan and maybe a little bit of Johnny Valentine. Like he was that kind of generation. Oli, of course, too, like popped off just before and helped Flair and, and, his, and his generation get over. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, th- th- there would be no woo. There would be no Ric Flair chop without the Wahoo chop. Um, you know, he, he certainly put Flair over. He put Greg Valentine over, and um, had his had spectacular feuds with with Tully Blanchard and, and, and Johnny Valentine, and a lot of other guys as well. Um, and, and some you know just bloodbath matches that are still remembered and, and you know revered this day by, by by the hardcore fans. So many people, and I wish there was more footage, have said Johnny Valentine versus Wahoo are like the most violent matches. And then if you watch the rest of the card, you're like, oh, all that stuff is fake. But those two guys, they're real. Like they would like kill each other. Have you found a lot of that? People were talking about that being the feud back in the day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anybody who saw Johnny Valentine and Wahoo will tell you those were some of the most violent matches they ever saw. And, you know, Johnny Valentine's mantra was, I can't make you believe wrestling's real, but I'll make you believe that I'm real. And that certainly applied to Wahoo as well. That that was how he approached every single match. And you know, so, some of the interviews that Greg Valentine's given, talking about 
just how stiff Wahoo could be and how tough he could be and everything like that. You know, he, he certainly had that same mentality and uh, he found, you know, as much as he found, you know, his, his ultimate nemesis and his ultimate rival, Rick Flair, um, I, I think he would have, you know, if it hadn't been for that plane crash, he, he would have had a much longer feud and, and a much more legendary feud with Johnny Valentine, just because they were such kindred spirits and, and they just both love to go out there. They love to hit, they love to be hit and uh, they love to steal the show. What was it about like Wahoo when you're re- researching that like stood out to you maybe more than some of the other stuff? Yeah, we, one of the things that really impressed me about him was he was not one of the veterans to take advantage of the young guys, uh, to pull the ribs and, and, and to make sure that these, these young guys coming up paid their dues. Uh, Wahoo was a guy who first and foremost made sure, you know, he got what was coming to him. He got taken care of, uh, i.e. making sure he got paid what his fair share was supposed to be and not what the promoter thought it should be. And that goes back to his days with pro football. You know, he might have stuck with pro football a little bit longer if they paid him better in the AFL, but they just weren't paying football players back then what they were paying pro wrestlers. Um, so he always wanted to make sure that, that he got his fair shake. And in turn, Wahoo made sure that, that the other guys got theirs as well. Um, there were a lot of great stories in the book about Wahoo sticking up for the younger guys, uh, Wahoo helping the other guys, not only with, with standing up to the promoters and, and doing what's right, but, you know, helping them get back at, at, at some of the veterans that they were kind of pushing them around. Um, there's a story about Tracy Smothers and, and uh, Steve Armstrong where, you know, they had had a couple of, you know, really nasty matches with another tag team. And uh, they were doing a, th- you know, six on, you know, three on three match with, with Wahoo in their corner and the other guys. And here we go. I can't remember their names, but, you know, Bill Dundee was on the other side of the ring with them. And uh, Wahoo got in the ring with them that night and he gave those guys the chops that they would never forget <laughs> for the rest of their life. And it kind of took up for Tracy and, and Steve. Um, there's another, another great story Stan Houston tells in the book about, you know, where Angelo Mosca, uh, senior had been giving him a hard time and Wahoo helped him to pull a rib back on Angelo. Um, and then there's, uh, another really great story is the, the story of, uh, Tony Atlas and how Tony Atlas had no gear when he was starting out. Um, he was a for- fellow former pro wrestler or pro, pro football player, just like Wahoo was. And Wahoo at one point told him, you know, he just had everything he had was in a paper bag. He said, you leave that here at this arena. They got in the car. They drove to the next arena. He pops the trunk when they get to the next place. And he says, that bag's yours. And the back had brand new pair of boots for Tony Atlas, brand new gear. Um, it was the first real gear that Tony ever had. And, and that came from Wahoo and uh, just came from a man who, who looked out for, for his fellow brothers, who, you know, looked out for, you know, the younger guys and, and especially looked out, I, th- I think, for, for the, his fellow football players. Um, Baron Von Raschke told me that, uh, you know, when, when he first got in the locker room with him and he was a former Nebraska Cornhusker and Wahoo was a former Oklahoma Sooner and said, well, us boys got to stick together. We got we, we got to look out for each other. And, uh, and and they became great friends. With Wahoo, too, and the NFL stuff, it's not like, you know, he wasn't a good player. I mean, he's a highly regarded NFL player, right? I mean, that that's a nice little chunk of a career there. You know, he was never an all-star. Uh, he's not in the Hall of Fame, and he certainly didn't have an all-star or Hall of Fame career. Uh, but you cannot tell the story about the American Football League. I mean, he spent 10 years playing in the AFL before it merged into the NFL. Uh, you can't tell the story of the AFL without Wahoo. Um, there's a really, really great book, and uh, the, the, the name of it's escaping me. I, I apologize, but it's an oral history of the AFL. Um, 
And uh, it, there were there were a lot of great Wahoo stories within that book, you know, from his time in New York, from his time in Miami Dolphins, and you know, again, he wasn't was never an All Star. He's not on any All AFL teams. You know, he's he's not a you know he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But you can't tell the story of the AFL without Wahoo. He was the most brash. He was most outspoken. He was the most colorful player in that league. You know, with the possible exception of Joe Namath there at the end. You know, when he came to New York, he said, this is this is my town now. And he took over and he was, you know, the, the media just ate it up. And we went to the Miami Dolphins, you know, the media ate it up again. He was, you know, the Dolphins were a brand new franchise and they needed they needed an attraction. They they, they brought in Wahoo McDaniel specifically to be that attraction. Um, you know, I, I, again, like I said, you know, not, not the you know, not a Hall of Famer, not an all star, but, you know, He's he's a guy I made you remember, and he's a guy who is is well remembered and well loved even even in football circles. Ten years pro football, pretty amazing. Though. Think about it, and then yeah. and yeah. then go to pro wrestling on top of that. Was there a reason, like for the for the shift to to wrestling? Was it injury or was it just you know his run was up? Oh, uh, it was it was money. <laughs> it was money. Oh, okay, you were mentioning uh, money, but was, was was there anything else though? Was there like yeah, he he had had he he had um, he had gotten had some issues. He he and another couple of players had been arrested with the Miami Dolphins for, for getting into a bar fight, um, and the Dolphins had suspended him, and he had tried to appeal, and, and he finally just decided, you know what, I'm done with football. It, it wasn't about injuries. I mean, he, he was he was starting to turn, starting to lose a step on the field. He wasn't as quick as he used to be, and everything like that. But uh, I, I think the main impetus was, you know, he was we just kind of done with football. It was was kind of done with, and you know, he was like, you know, I'm taking a couple of months out of the year to play football, and I'm actually taking a pay cut to come play football versus what I could be playing right. every night in, in pro wrestling. And you know, shoot, that goes back to Bronco Nagurski in the '40s. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a diehard Bears fan, but I mean, let's, Papa Hallis was 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 not good at playing his football, paying his football players. And, Bronco Nagurski, you know, realized very quickly is like I can get a whole lot less wear and tear on my body doing this pro wrestling stuff, and I can make a whole lot more money at it too, and, and do it all year round versus four months of the year. So, you know, it really wasn't until you know the contracts started going up and up and up, you know, you know after the merger and into the eighties that you know pro football became the place where you stayed longer because you made more money at that than you did pro wrestling, you know. Um, and, and Wahoo played a part in, in getting Dusty to switch from from football to wrestling. He played a part. In Bill Watts switching over to, to, to pro wrestling and uh, opened the doors for for a lot of his, his fellow football players to say, hey, you want to make some real money, get over here and do some pro wrestling. With Wahoo, he was also a real Native American, too, which obviously, you know, they, everyone always says Chief J. Strombo, who is Italian, but pretty great that he's an actual true blue, real Native American playing the character. He was, and he was not. He didn't play to the stereotype. He didn't talk like the Native Americans you, you heard on television at the time. He just he he was Wahoo, and he he spoke, you know, and 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 was was actually a really great representative. You know, he he wore the headdresses and he he laid the chops in and everything like that. But uh, now he was his father was half Choctaw, half Chickasaw, and his mother was actually German. But uh, no, he he was as as Native American, certainly more Native American than most of the. Uh, the, the chiefs and the, the the princesses that were running around in pro wrestling back in the day. So I wrote Princess Victoria's book too. She's a she's a full blooded Native American, but uh, um, yeah, Wahoo was was half and and, uh, and certainly you know wore that wore that headdress with with a whole lot of pride and distinction. Pretty interesting though. Did he have anything against the guys that weren't really Native American that are playing the character, or he didn't really care because it's wrestling? 
According to, to, to Karen McDaniel, no. He never really had any issues, and uh, his one and only appearance for WWF was in the ring side-by-side side with Chief J. Strongbow when they handed a, uh, a uh, brand-new headdress to Tatanka on Monday Night Raw back in, back in the 90s. So um, Karen said he never really had any kind of a beef or anything like that with him. And um, Actually, I think it was Victoria that we, we talked a little bit about Chief J and his portrayal of, of – uh, of, uh, you know, the, the Native American character and, you know, and the headdresses that he wore and the headdresses that Wahoo wore, they, they were made by Native American tribes and they would not have given, you know, headdresses like that to, to Jay Strongbow, to Joe Scarpa, you know, unless they felt like he was honoring them and, you know, in, in, in a way that they appreciated. And, you know, Wahoo never had any issue with it and, and, and Victoria certainly never had any issue with it either. But, um, you know, no, no heat between him and Joe Scarpa as far as I know. So with Princess Victoria as well, you wrote her book. Just a, a little mm-hmm. bit, a little background on her. Yeah, Victoria was uh, her. Her story is, I'll, I'll tell you, kind of a hard one to read in the beginning because she she grew up with a lot of abuse, a lot of terrible sexual abuse that she details in the book. But uh, Victoria is one of the toughest, one of the toughest people I've ever met in her entire life. She survived all of that. Um, she came out of it. She really pro wrestling kind of, kind of helped save her and kind of get her on, on the right path. She became a fan uh, watching, you know, Don Owens promotion up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, she was always at the arena. She was always coming to the shows. Uh, Sandy Barr kind of took up to liking to her and helped her to set things up and everything like that. Um, actually opened his house up to her and everything, you know, as, as well, just so he could keep an eye on her. He, could, you know, she moved out when, when she was still underage and, um, you know, just, just to get out of her mother's house and get away from her stepfather. Um, but, but Sandy Barr kept a real close eye on her. She, she tells some really funny stories about sneaking out in the middle of the night, thinking she was getting away with something. And Sandy Barr had an alarm on the window that would go off and he would call up one of the wrestlers and say, Hey, Vicky's out. Can you go find her and make sure she gets back home safe? And, um, but he, uh, he, he kind of, kind of duped her into to, to training. He told her, I've got another girl that's going to be coming in and I need somebody to take bumps with her. And, the other girl didn't last very long, but, but Victoria stuck around and, and kept training. And then he introduced her to Velvet McIntyre. And, uh, they ended up going down to, to the Carolinas and, and, of course, becoming a part of the fabulous Moolahs group. And she only wrestled for about four years because she did sustain a you know, career-ending neck injury at one point. Um, and then went, went, went through some more, more difficult times and everything like that. But uh, let me tell you, she's just – first of all, she's one of the funniest people I've ever met. She's got some incredible stories and, you know, no regrets and, and no, no bitterness whatsoever about the fact her career only lasted for a couple of years. Um, you know, she had to travel with a whole lot of great people. She hung out with a whole lot of fun people and, you know, just, just, just an absolute pleasure to talk to anytime I got a chance to, to, to spend time with her and um, one heck of a storyteller too. So, um, yeah. And, and one of the unsung heroes of, of, you know, women's wrestling, you know, she was, there at a time in the in the early 80s when it wasn't really getting a lot of spotlight. And uh, if you go back and, and you look at the women who wrestled back then, they don't look like the ladies who wrestle now, much less the ladies that wrestled during the whole Divas era with the WWE. Uh, they they were tough. They could hold their own, and uh, you know they 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 went out there and, and they fought every night. With her, like, do you seek her out because you want to tell her story? Did she seek you out because she wants you to write her book? She she came to me as well, um, and that was through Scott Teal. She had actually reached out to him first, and um, of course Scott's probably one of you know arguably the the great 
historian, you know, pro wrestling historian that we still have. And, you know, certainly the great encyclopedist of, of you know, pro wrestling with all the record books he's put out, as well as the biographies, and the autobiographies that he's co-written. Um, but no, Scott, Scott was, had kind of a full agenda and he gave her a couple of names and Vicky reached out to me. We talked on the phone and, and she agreed to go with me and, um, we, we had a wonderful time collaborating on our book. I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that, that Scott sent her my way. With all the fabulous Moolah controversy and stuff, she goes into that as well. Yeah. Um, it, Vicky certainly has, has, has her issues with, with Moolah. Um, particularly the way Mula handled her departure, you know, she couldn't make any more money with Vicky and rather than trying to turn her into a valet or, or work with her in any way whatsoever. She basically said, get your stuff and get out and you still owe me back rent for, for last month. Um, so, I mean, Mula really kind of, kind of did her wrong, kicked her to the curb and then turned around and told all the girls, yeah, Vicky's in jail. She got busted with cocaine, which was a lie. She didn't find out about until about 20 years after the fact, um, Vicky will tell you, she's like, Mula's a Hall of Famer, you know, and, and she, she had a Hall of Fame career, and, and she certainly, you know, was a trailblazer for, for women in pro wrestling. But, uh, you know, she's, she's never forgiven Mula for, for the way that she did her. Um, and, and, you know, there, there, there's a whole lot about how, how Mula handled, handled Victoria and, and Velvet when they, when they came in. And, you know, they've been trained by you know, Sammy Barr, and they had, you know, worked side by side with, you know, everybody from, from Roddy Piper to, to Ric Flair and Don Morocco and, and all these guys and everything. And they come in and they're, they're trading in Mula's barn and Mula goes, well, they need to be trained a little bit more. And by Mula saying they need to be trained, like they need to pay me to, to give them some lessons. So um, I, again, certainly some bitterness and, and certainly some things that were not on the up and up with, with Mula. And, and she goes into that some, somewhat in her book. Um, and she certainly said her piece too was on the dark side of the ring episode about the fabulous Mula as well. So as far as some other books you've written, what about Tracy Smothers? Oh, Tracy. <laughs> That's another one that was brought to me. Um, buddy of his named Tim Dennison, who's a, he's, a, he's an attorney in Louisville, but he's, he's also worked a lot as, as a manager for different people and stuff. And was really helping Tracy to, 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 to stay on the road in his, his last couple of years before his cancer diagnosis. Um, there is nobody with a bigger heart, nobody who has done more to help other people in the pro wrestling business than Tracy Smothers. Uh, with the possible exception of Madman Pondo, I, I think I've worked with two of the guys who have the biggest heart and have probably helped more guys, uh, selflessly helped more guys and, and more ladies out than, than Pondo and, and Tracy. Um, Tracy was a heck of a storyteller. Um, he was a guy who would give you the shirt off his back and, and give, you his, give you his shoes, too, if, if you needed them. Um, yeah, I mean, or, or Chris Hero had such a wonderful speech about it the other night at Game Changer Wrestling at the, at the Indian Wrestling Hall of Fame, and you know, talking about you know how Tracy would sit behind the curtain, he would watch every single match, you know, and, and any guy or girl who came up and said, "Hey, you know, what'd you think of my match?" Tracy would give him feedback. It was always positive. It was always constructive. You know, Tracy would give him his number. If they gave him his number, he would text him. He would keep in touch with him. He'd connect with him on Facebook. You know, and, and he really paid attention, you know, um, this guy, uh, Ricky Perillo, who wrestles as Mr. Brickster, you know, he was out injured for a while. We got a message out of the blue from Tracy going, hey, I saw you're injured. Keep your chin up. Keep eating some peanut butter. Keep doing your exercises. You, you get back there. You, you'll be all right. You know, Tr Tracy's got so many people out there that, that still refer to him as their pops. You know, he was their wrestling dad. And to a lot of them, he was the only dad they had. Some of the ones that, that came from broken homes and, and didn't really have good good father figures at home. Um, 
I mean, just a joy to be around and, and, and a guy who would call or text me just out of the blue, just to talk and, 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 you know, see how I was doing and share a funny story or something like that. Um, I, I miss Tracy terribly. He was, he was just, just one of the best people I ever met. And um, I, again, another great storyteller and, and, and somebody who would make, make you laugh and, and, and pick you up and, you know, just, you know, make you feel better on a bad day. He seems like one of like the you know, the most well respected guys in the business. Like everybody loved him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you say you you know it was all, all of those guys that were on you know the, the Indie Wrestling Hall of Fame the other night. You know, I mean, there's you'd have to look long and hard to find guys that would say something negative about Tracy Smothers, and they're out there, but uh, they're, they're probably keeping their mouth shut because everybody else is going to going to shout them down. But you know, he he just helps so many people, you know, and just encouraging them and training them and. Um, you know, opening up doors for them, saying, "Hey, want to go on the road with me? Want to come to this show?" Or, you know, I mean, yeah, Tracy and I be at a show, and this is before he even started working on his book when we had just met and we're talking about it. You know, anybody comes over and we, we talk to him, we shake hands with him, talk to him. He's like, "You got to meet this guy. This this guy writes about wrestling. He's got some really good stuff. And, you know, you, you got to get to know him." And he he would put everybody over like that. Um, de- definitely a well-respected guy and, and and a guy who was very much missed. It's crazy, like to think, um, you know, that that he's gone because he contributed so much mm-hmm. to the business and helped all the younger guys. When a lot of guys of his distinction and of his like veteranness, I guess you could say, I mean, kind of would not really help everybody out. But he was very much the opposite. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I was uh, I was actually talking to Doug Basham last week for for the Louisville book, and he, uh, you know, asked him, you know, about about his early days at OVW what his first match was and his first televised match was Tracy Smothers. And he's like, do I have to say anything more? I said, no, <laughs> he said, he said, you know, and Tracy was just the best guy. He was a pleasure to be around and, uh, it just, just made the locker room a better place. And, um, yeah, when, when he left us that, that left a huge hole in, in, in that locker room and, and left a huge hole in, in, in a lot of people's lives. So with, other books you've written you mentioned madman pondo as well mm-hmm. yeah madman pondo was one i actually sought him out and said you need to do a book and uh i had gotten no pondo working on my second book eat sleep wrestle which was uh kind of a deep dive into indie wrestling um and i came i actually came to write that book while i was promoting bluegrass brawlers my, my first book about louisville I was going to some of the local indie shows and, and absolutely fell in love with the indie wrestling scene and the indie wrestlers. You know, these are, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I've always dreamed of writing full time. And, you know, this, this is what I do. This is my passion. This is something I sacrifice for. And, you know, I, I, I don't make a whole lot of money at it, but it's not going to stop me. I mean, you know, I, I just, I love it. It's what I want to do. And, you know, I, I see that in them, you know, this is what they love to do. This is what they drive three, four hours a night. Um, actually in the case of a girl named Sierra that I interviewed or, or spoke to over Facebook last week who works at OVW, she drives six hours down from Milwaukee and six hours back every Wednesday for their TV tapings, you know, and um, just became inspired by the whole indie wrestling scene. But I got to know Pondo. I interviewed him um, when I was working on that second book and <clears throat> invited him and his uh, then girlfriend who, you know, went on to become WWE's Sarah Logan out to dinner and, Anytime I saw him at a show afterwards, he called me over. He's like, "Hey, gotta tell you a story." And he tell me the story about Paul Orndorff. He tell me a story about this. He tell me a story about that. <clears throat> I was working on uh, Kitty Boland's book at that time, the the, the uh, OVW 
manager who kind of, kind of helped uh, really, really helped John Cena and a whole lot of other guys get, get to the WWE. And if you know Kenny, you know Kenny's stories, that there's, there's a little bit of truth in it. There's a whole lot of made-up stuff in it as well. And the thing with Pondo is you'd hear some of his stories and you'd think, oh, okay, he's stretching the truth. He's telling tall tales just like Bolin is. But the minute you think Pondo's making it up, he pulls his phone out and he goes, here's the photo. Here's the video. You know, here's, here's me and Marilyn Manson backstage. And we're putting the Vicks vapor rub in our tear ducts. We're gonna. I got a hundred dollar bet. Who's gonna Who's gonna tear up first? You know, which which Pondo won the bet, by the way. Hmm. You know, or he told me the story about David Blaine. You know, where David Blaine's doing this gag over the the, the Thames River in London, where he's in a in a glass box for forty days and nights without any food. So I went out and I found the biggest burger I could find, the biggest drink I could find. I went down there and I yelled until I got his attention and I sat there and ate that burger right in front of him. And he's got the photos of that as well. <laughs> so but uh, I told Pondo, I was like, you're, you're a great storyteller. We need to get these things into a book. And he's like, nobody wants to read my book. Nobody wants to read a book by Madman Pondo. I'm like, just let's, let's do it. And I finally coaxed him into it. We said probably about I, – I, over the course of a year, I wrote his book, and I also wrote Dr. D. David Schultz's book. And uh, David's came out first, and then Pondo's came out a couple months later. And, you know, here we are almost four years later. It's, it's still one of my best sellers. And he's, you know, beyond, you know, it's just like I can't believe people are still buying my book. And, you know, he's, he's going out to a show this weekend. He's going to take another 10 of them. He'll, he'll probably sell them out when he's at the table. Um, but this, this is another guy, too, who is just, you know, he's taken a lot of people under his wing. You know, it's like, hey, give me your number, you know, and call him up. Hey, I'm going to this place. Why don't you hop in the car with me? Why don't you come along? You know, maybe you can get booked. Um, he's taken a lot of guys under his wing. He's helped a lot of guys out. And, you know, it's been a lot of independent guys, but it's also been people like Kane. You know, he was one of the first guys to take Glenn Jacobs on the road when he was first starting out. And uh, Chris Hero was another one. And he, he shared a locker room at IWA Men's South with CM Punk and Colt Cabana and, and a whole lot of other guys. And, you know, he, he's he's given a whole lot and, and not asked for, for much in return and, and, you know, not really gotten as, as much in return as, as he deserves, kind of like Tracy has. And, and he continues to do that. You know, he's he's still doing that with younger talent. And, you know, for the last several years, he's had the Girl Fight Wrestling promotion, which he created, you know, initially to, to help Crazy Mary Dobson to get out there and to help her to get make some contacts with some of the veterans and um, get her some matches against people like Jazz and Fisto, so she can get some more experience, but also make some contacts. And um, even after they split, you know, actually it was Sue Young that called him up and said, "What you did for her, you're doing for us. You have to keep this thing going." And uh, you know, you look at the you know, the list of it's it's well over 100 girls at this point, you know, who've worked a girl fight, and, and you can see them wrestling for WWE, you see them wrestling for AEW, you see them wrestling for Impact. Um, He's just opened up a lot of doors for a lot of people. He's a very give, giving guy. He's a very caring guy. You know, he'll put people over endlessly. He won't go out there and self-promote himself as, you know, as much as he could and as, as much as maybe he should, you know. Um, and uh, and he's still doing it. He's still out there wrestling. He's still out there promoting. And, <clears throat> you know, he's, again, another guy who's, who's – his impact on the business is, is probably immeasurable because it's, it's hard to say just how many people he's helped and how many people he's encouraged along the way. Do you think a lot of people know that, like, about him and his story? Or do you think that's one of the things where it's almost uh, not under wraps, but a little bit secretive? Like, not everybody knows all that stuff. Certainly, he's he's less high profile than Tracy. I mean, Tracy was part of ECW. Tracy was part of 
Um, and well, well, I guess Freddie Joe Floyd was part of WWF and, 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 you know, some, some of the other major TV promotions, uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling certainly gave him more exposure, but, um, you know, within, you know, the internet wrestling communities is certainly much more connected, I think, than, than it was 20 years ago. And I think there are more people that know Madman Pondo's name, but, but not as, you know, not as many, you know, as Tracy and probably not as many as should, you know, I mean, he was one of the first guys to kind of innovate deathmatch wrestling, which is now starting to invade, you know, prime time on cable with AEW. And, um, it's, it's certainly growing in popularity and, and, uh, he was, he was one of the first guys to bring that to America. With, you know, a lot of the books you write, do you think that a lot of it is people are going to learn a lot or you think that people should know this? Like what, what, what are your thoughts like on as far as telling stories that nobody's heard, but also, you know, making it so the casual fan is somewhat familiar with the person. I, I think I think there's a, there's a little of all of that. You know, um, for me, there's inspiration in all of these stories. These are people that were dreamers. They went out, they wanted to be pro wrestlers, and, and they made their dream happen. Um, I see that in the story of Madman Pondo. I mean, you know, he grew up being a wrestling fan, and you know, as, he, as he'll tell you, I, I didn't have the looks that the WWF wants or WCW. No, I couldn't do it. When I discovered Deathmatch Wrestling, I was like, that's it. That's how I'm going to become famous. And he went out and he made it happen. You know, for me, there's, there's that inspirational piece of it. Um, in, in writing these books, you know, honestly, the, the, the number one people that I'm writing towards is the people whose stories I'm telling, you know, whether it's Madman Pondo, whether it's um, Wahoo McDaniel, whether it's Chris Candido or, or whomever it might be. You know, I want to do them right. I want to do their families right. And I, I want to honor them by telling the story the way they want it to be told. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you want to, you know, entertain the casual fans. You want to share the fun stories. You want to make people laugh. Um, you want to educate them with the stories and everything like that. And at the same time, you, you do hope that the people who are, you know, the diehard history fans are, are going to come away going, yep, that was that was accurate and that was correct and, you know, Certainly, some sometimes there are stories that are exaggerated. I mean, this is pro wrestling, you know. That the, you know, K K Fabe still lives, and you know, even people say it's been dead for a long time. And um, but 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 you want to give people a good piece of history. You want to tell them these these people's stories. You want them to come away entertained. And you know, again, most important to me is is that I honor the people, that I honor their legacies, and 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 celebrate them for for who they are and what they've done for the business. And Candido's book. Forgot to mention that. Yeah. How did that all come about? Obviously, Johnny Candido played a big role. Oh, that was Tracy Smothers. That was uh, Tracy on multiple occasions saying, after you finish my book, you got to do Candido. You know, and in any interview you see with Tracy, when they ask him the question, who's your favorite guy you ever got in the ring with? They, they can't even finish the question. Candido. No, no, Candido was the best I ever got in the ring with. And um, he actually put me in touch with, uh, with, with, uh, some of Chris's friends and, and with the family and uh, with Johnny and, and, and Johnny became a great partner with the book and um, helping tell Chris's story. And, and again, that was an opportunity to talk to a lot of different people who had known Chris and, and work with them everybody from Tommy dreamer to Al snow, Joel Gartner, um, and anybody and everybody wanted, that wanted to tell a Candido story. Um, and I don't know, Tammy was in prison at the time and but sadly she's back in prison right now too. And, of course, the family doesn't necessarily get along with her or anything like that. But, um, you know, we, we certainly tried to tell Tammy's story in as, as, as fair and as, as and balanced a way you know, as I was able. You know, there, there were, you know, the good and the bad and, and even sharing the comments from other people, you know, the, the good and the bad from from those who, who viewed, viewed, viewed that relationship from different angles. But um, 
I, Candido's, I'll, I'll say he's, he's the one guy whose matches I still go back and watch probably more than anybody else that I've ever written about. And just, just for the entertainment value, um, you know, not, not only are the great matches and they're entertaining and, and sometimes funny as heck, but just, just the pure joy he had being in the ring and, and whether he was playing Skip Donna, whether he was playing himself, you know, whether he was doing an ECW match and trying to get Al Snow over and, and, and help him to, to build his character and launch his career, or whether he was coming out in the middle of a, you know, what's supposed to be a serious IWA Mid-South show and putting on the county match of all time. You know, Chris Candido loved pro wrestling. He lived for pro wrestling. And uh, it was just, just a joy to watch him wrestle and, and certainly a joy to tell his story. Yeah, he was awesome. And I always uh, do another show with Shane Douglas. And he always mentions Chris and how great he was and how he would just do some of the comedy stuff when he didn't quite expect it. But then he can go back to be this great, serious wrestler if he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite stories was um, it was uh, Jake Manning, uh, the man, man Scout, told this wonderful story. It was one of the first shows he ever worked. Um, he was brand new. He was green. And, you know, I, I believe he was working for Friday W made South and Ian Rotten. And, you know, Jake was sitting in this little kitchen area just outside where, where the, the, the seats were and the ring was and everything like that, where they were going to make their entrance. He was nervous and sitting there. He's the only person in the kitchen and Chris Candido comes walking in, you know, and Candido was, was not the tallest guy. And there's a mirror over the sink in this little kitchen and it's too tall. And Candido puts on this whole comedy routine where he gets a stool and he stands up and he checks himself in the mirror. And he's doing this whole thing, checking himself out and everything like that for an audience of one. And it's this nervous green little kid, you know, having one of his first matches in front of people. And he said the fact that he would go and do that, nobody else is around, you know, and this guy's worked at WrestleMania, you know, and here, here he is doing this comedy act to make me laugh, to make me loosen up before I go out and wrestle, you know, in front of a crowd that has no idea who I am. It just meant the world to me. Um, and this is the kind of person that he was. You know, he was a guy who made every locker room, you know, more joyful and more excited. You know, he would tell people, hey, wait a minute. You guys, we're getting to do what we dreamed of doing as kids, okay? Let's not sit around and be all somber and serious about it. This is fun. This is exciting. We're living our dream. And he, he never, ever lost sight of that. You know, the tragic thing about his story, when you think about it, is he, he wouldn't even be 50 yet if he was still around, you know. And, you know, would, would he be, you know, it's it's discussion I've had with a lot of people. Would he be working backstage at AEW? You know, would he be at the Performance Center? You know, more than likely, he probably would have come and gone from the Performance Center and be at AEW at this point. I think that's most likely where he would be. But, you know, I mean, just, just the impact – I mean, the impact he still has on the business, you know, I can't tell you how many wrestlers I know who have picked up his book and read it, and you know, people who still watch his matches and everything. But imagine if he was back there. Imagine if he was still wrestling matches. Imagine if he was still doing indie spots. You know, imagine if he was teaching seminars or if he was coaching, just the amount of impact he could have on the business, you know, not only from, you know, teaching the skill and teaching the psychology and everything, but just sharing the love and the passion that he has for the business. You know, it's just, you know, just another tragic loss. So as far as all the books you've written, what like what ones have I missed? Because I feel like I've maybe missed uh, Black Panther. I feel like I missed a few. There's a there's a few we haven't hit on. Um, some of the more historical books. I, I did a book called Louisville's Greatest Show, which was a deep dive into the uh, the Allen Athletic Club that we had from 1935 to 1957. Uh, again, that's the promotion that made 
Tuesday night, Louisville's night at wrestling. And um, Haywood Allen broke away from, he was working at the Savoy Theater. He had a falling out with the owner of the Savoy. He started his own promotion and the fans followed him, you know, within three years, the Savoy had dried up and the Allen club became the wrestling show in Louisville for 22 years. Um, and it's kind of a year by year look at, at that promotion and, and, you know, the wrestlers that came and went, the, the key stories from every year, <clears throat> as well as some of the key figures that were part of the promotion or, you know, and not just wrestlers, but, but some of the local Louisville personalities. Um, there's a spotlight in there about Ellis Joseph, who was a very flamboyant, very, you know, colorful, loved to see his name in the paper, a Louisville homicide detective who also worked as a referee. Um, there's Stu Gibson, who was actually from New Albany, Indiana, right across the river from Louisville, uh, was a high school football hero, was a University of Louisville football hero, and really kind of became you know, what Kurt Angle would become 50 years later, where, you know, he was the local hero, but he turned heel and became the most hated man in Louisville as as the arrogant Stu Gibson. And um, that was, the Allen Athletic Club was a story that really fascinated me because it's a story I hadn't heard told, I hadn't seen in print, and I had only seen bits and pieces of, you know, results of it over the years. That that was one story I wanted to tell. Um, Black Panther Jim Mitchell uh, also came, both of these books actually came out of my first book, you know, Bluegrass Brawlers. But uh, I discovered Jim Mitchell when I was working on the first book, and he was an African-American from Louisville, Kentucky, who went on to become a superstar in pro wrestling. Um, He got his start in the late 1920s, was main eventing shows in in northern Indiana by 1932 uh, with no color barrier. He wasn't only wrestling against black wrestlers because there weren't that many black wrestlers at the time. He was wrestling against white wrestlers and um, Asian wrestlers and, and, you know, Hispanic wrestlers for pretty much his entire career. Uh, in fact, had a major rivalry with uh, Gorgeous George out on the, on the West Coast that uh, on August 24th, 1949, they incited a riot at the Olympic Auditorium. And uh, Mitchell ended up getting exiled to New York, New Jersey for six months afterwards because the Athletic Commission got upset and a couple of people had to go to the hospital after the riot. Um, this is a story that really fascinated me, and I was able to tell it in part because a guy saw a blog post that I had written about it and put me in touch with a man in Toledo, Ohio who had bought Jim Mitchell's house um, probably 12 years after his death. Um, His stepdaughter had lived in the house after him and his wife had passed. And this guy bought it just as a flip and went in to start cleaning things out so he could renovate it and found, you know, wrestling boots, wrestling posters, letters, you know, personal photos, all kinds of things that that had been left behind him and were just still sitting there. And um, was really was was able to archive all this stuff and and to really tell the story of of who Jim Mitchell was, you know, thanks in part to this huge find. Um, another one that that I really love is Kenzie uh, Elvira Snodgrass. She was uh, Mildred Burke's chief rival in the 1940s. Um, was another name that jumped out at me when I was working on my first book about Louisville. And, um, there was a story that that got handed down over the years that she and Mildred Burke had sold out Louisville, Kentucky, and brought 15,000 people in just to watch a women's wrestling match, which unfortunately was exaggerated. It was a story that Mildred Burke and Billy Wolf kind of blew out of proportion um, very quickly, actually. Over a couple of months, it ballooned from, you know, they were second on the second on the card, and, and I believe the total attendance that night was like maybe two or 3,000, you know, but within a couple of months, they had ballooned it up to being 15,000. Um, but, uh, yeah, Elvira was... was uh, you know, cousin Elvira Snodgrass. It's a name that jumps out at you. You know, she was you know probably one of the first women to take on a real character and to play a hillbilly in the ring, uh, along with her husband, soon to be ex-husband Elmer Snodgrass. Um, 
it was it was I was able to get in touch with a couple of her um, her descendants, one a niece and a nephew who had some stories and remembered her. Um, not not an easy story to tell because because again you're going back and you know trying to piece together the life story of somebody who lived kayfabe and was a pro wrestler during the 1940s and 50s. And, um, but again, just 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 a fascinating person and. Um, you know, another tragic ending to her career. She was in a car accident uh, where her she was driving by herself and her car rolled off into a ditch um, outside of Covington, Kentucky. And according to the family lore, newspaper records don't quite bear this out. They tell a different story. But the family lore is she had her arm out the window and her arm was pinned between the door and the ditch. And she actually cut her own arm off to get out of the car and go away for help. Um that's what the family swears by too. So, wow. um, I mean, again, I mean, how tough was this woman, you know, and <clears throat> I found some great stories in, in the newspapers as well about, you know, um, there's, there's a really fun one about, you know, a fan who tried to attack her when she was working heel in the ring. And then later that night, she spotted him in an elevator, chased the elevator down before the doors could close. I got in there and had a few words with him. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I yeah, yeah. I, I just love these stories. And, you know, there's certain ones I'm just kind of grab onto you and, and, and you want to know more. And, you know, for, for me, knowing more means, you know, putting their stories in print in some way or another. You know, there's a couple others I'd love to go after. Wee Willie Davis is one. Uh, Mars Bennett, who had, was in the circus for in the 1940s and then turned pro wrestler in 1950. Um, there's just so many of them, you know, and it's, you know, it, it's getting harder and harder to tell their stories. But, you know, the cool thing is, you know, more and more newspapers are coming online, these newspaper archives, and, you know, there's, you're able to find things that you couldn't find quite as easily, you know, even 10 years ago when I first started this. As we hit the wind down, head towards the finish here, also got to mention Chris Michaels and, of course, guy who I had on the show before, J.J. McGuire, kind of the uh, forgotten man of, of music. Some may say better music than Jim Johnston. You know that's a, that that that's a very when you look at the number of songs that they did and you look at which ones they did I mean it's it's tough to argue with that but uh, JJ was the music to to Jimmy Hart's lyrics on a lot of those theme songs including Sexy Boy including Cool Cocky and Bad um, Demolition and Superfly and um, you know JJ was a lot of fun to work with JJ's actually a Kentucky boy he's from down Somerset Kentucky and um, he and I were put in touch by a, by another podcaster named Robin Nelson and uh, got, got to be good friends. And he was working with somebody else on his book. And when, when things didn't quite work out, then, then the two of us got a chance to collaborate. And um, a lot of JJ's stories start out with, I got a phone call from Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart said, Hey, McGuire, I got a call from Hogan. <laughs> hmm. but, uh, uh, he got, uh, the two of them got to know each other back when uh, JJ auditioned for the Gentries and he became their new drummer. He was a drummer on their, uh, their hit song, Cinnamon Girl. And uh, JJ had an interesting career out in LA. He worked at uh, Glen Glen Sound, which if you've ever watched any of those old TV shows like The 18, you see the name Glen Glen Sound pop up all the time. That's where a lot of the old TVs and movie show, you know, t- movies and TV shows used to go and do their ADR, their their dialogue recording after the fact. And he's got a lot of great stories about different celebrities coming in, people he got to meet then, and um, a lot of good stories about. In the 1980s when when the wwf started to get into music and jimmy hart brought him in to first of all to work with jerry jerry lawler down in memphis and then to work with uh, the wwf and um 
They also collaborated on Thunder in Paradise when Hulk Hogan was doing the TV show, and they, they were. But JJ was basically all the music on that Hulk Hogan rock and wrestling, um, Hulk Hogan and the Wrestling Boot Band album. Um, yeah, JJ's got a fascinating story. He's he's a great musician. He's a, he's a really fun storyteller, and uh, you know it was was a lot of fun working with him. And Chris Michaels, Chris was so motivated to write his own book, he didn't even wait for me. <laughs> he. Uh, hmm. He uh, he wrote his book out longhand, and, and one of his kids typed it out. And basically, all I did was was, was clean it up and, and format it and, and throw pictures into it. Um, Chris wrote his book from scratch, all by himself, telling his life story. And you know, he's one of those guys that uh, you know, if you were to walk into a bar and you were to see Shawn Michaels sitting on one end and Chris Michaels sitting on the other, everybody's going to be mobbing Shawn. Everybody's going to get two minutes of Shawn's time. You go sit down next to Chris, you're going to hear some stories. Because he's been in the locker room with a whole lot of different people. Um, he's known, known a whole lot of different people and, and seen a whole lot of things. He's, he's worked for every promotion that's out there, um, doing dark matches or, or doing little things here and there. Um, was another guy spent a lot of good, a lot of time with Tracy Smothers, and uh, he's one of those guys that was always almost there, but just something always happened, you know, with 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 every shot he ever got at the big time, but. You know, a guy who just never quit, a guy who kept going. And, you know, again, another one of those independent wrestlers that, that inspires me as a writer to, to keep going and, and not, not give up on my own dreams. And um, anybody who's ever seen Chris Michaels, anybody who's ever, you know, watched any of his matches or anything like that, you're, you're certainly going to enjoy his story. Um, and, and even if you haven't, you know, again, he's another one of those guys. He's been in the locker rooms. He's was the fly on the wall, and, and he's seen some things. <laughs> so, um, you know, definitely a fun read. So what's next? What's coming up next for you? Like I said, the, the Bluegrass Brawlers is, is the big one that's on my plate right now. Um, I should have that out this spring. And um, the first book covered 1880 all the way up till 2014. Um, I, I did. There were a couple of time gaps, and there were some stories that I wasn't able to go as detailed on the first time and, and really trying to get, go a little bit deeper. Um, there's, there's a whole section from 1925 to 1935 when the Gaiety Theater and the Savoy Theater were, were first um, had a kind of a promotional rivalry going on. That was also the t- time period when the state of Kentucky first started trying to regulate pro wrestling and the Savoy Theater took them on head to head and uh, actually got an injunction against the state of Kentucky and ran outlaw. Um, it was kind of a fun story to, to to read along with because, you know, the state of Kentucky kept propping up all these other promoters and trying to get people out to run in Louisville. And the Savoy Theater kept running them all out of business <laughs> until the state of Kentucky finally just re- threw the laws out and just rewrote them and, uh, and fixed all the loopholes. Uh, that's the big thing going on right now. Uh, I've got another project coming up with Batman Pondo. We're going to come out with a – he's got a, an idea for a second book. He wants to get out by summer. Um uh, and beyond that, I've, I've got a couple of possibilities, just waiting on some different people to see who's, who's going to be ready to go next. And um, some of the historical bios that I'm interested in getting to, you know, we Willie Davis or Mars Bennett, you know, we'll see what happens with those. I've been in touch with some of Mars relatives and they're eager to share her story. And uh, um, I don't know. We'll see. If you can, please give us a rundown, of all the books again and where everybody can get them. Certainly. Um, oh, one we didn't mention, uh, which uh, again another one that I didn't have a hand in, but that was it was my pleasure to uh, to uh, publish is uh, Mike Rogers, who's been a pro wrestling historian of the Pacific Northwest for years and years, and uh, he was given the Melby Award at Cauliflower Alley a couple of years ago, and 
2018, but Mike published his first book this past year, Excitement in the Air, Volume 1. And it's a compilation of uh, interviews that he had conducted with people who worked in the Pacific Northwest that uh, people seem to really be enjoying. Um, Mike just does a phenomenal job just, just helping to tell these people stories and, and get them into prints. And uh, he's the first one's been so successful just in the first couple of months. He's already working on volume two, uh, just, just collecting old interviews. Um, but you can find that book, Wahoo McDaniel, Princess Victoria, Chris Candido, Black Panther, Jim Mitchell, Elvira Snodgrass, Louisville's Greatest Show, J.J. McGuire's book. Chris Michael's book, all of them you can find on eatsleepwrestle.com. Uh, that is my website. That is the place to go if you want to get a signed copy of any of these books. And you can also head to Amazon.com and you can find all those books on Amazon as well. All right. Awesome stuff. Thank you, John, for all the time. Really appreciate it. Hey, John, it's been my pleasure. Happy to do it anytime. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.